go take a hike. Maybe you've said that to somebody. Maybe someone has said it to you. If somebody says, go take a hike, it's pretty obvious what they want. Get away from me. Get out of here. Now, maybe I'm naive. I'm not the biggest hiker. But I would never really consider that somebody wishing ill will or danger upon someone else. But the fact is, hiking can be pretty dangerous. There's a lot of things that can go wrong when someone goes on a hike. For example, in 2017, there was a man named Jim Murphy, and he was in Yellowstone National Park hiking in the Rocky Mountains. He'd been hiking for a while, a couple of days. He was backpacking, and all of a sudden, he started to climb up a rock incline. And this wasn't a smart move for Jim because he wasn't the best climber, and it was a really dangerous climb. And unfortunately for Jim, he lost his footing. One thing led to another, and Jim fell. And that was the end of Jim. Now, I bring this story to you about this hike because it wasn't just a normal hike for Jim. No, he was actually on a treasure hunt. A couple of years earlier, a man had written in his journal, Ferdinand Fien, that he had several million dollars hidden in a treasure chest somewhere in the Rocky Mountains between Santa Fe and south of Canada, above 5,000 feet elevation. And so Jim was on a hike for treasure, a hunt for glory, finding some jewels, some gold, some precious silver in a little 20-inch by 20-inch box. And the crazy thing is, Jim Murphy hasn't been the only one that had this fate looking for this exact treasure. Now, I bring this up because when we think of treasure, it has this mystique to it. We think of a wooden box shackled shut full of gold and jewels and silver and coins. We might think of pirates and Jack Sparrow, adventure hunters, maybe Indiana Jones. But hunting for treasure can be dangerous. And as Jim Murphy would probably say, all that glitters isn't really gold. Your treasure hunt can end in your demise. So we got to be careful with treasure. But treasure isn't just a thing that we find. It's also something we do. We treasure things. We uphold things as really valuable in our lives. But those can be just as dangerous as going on a treasure hunt in Yellowstone National Park. You might treasure or hold on high value, an old retro car, some sort of possession, maybe a really nice house, a boat, a vacation home. We might treasure a career or a job, get a sense of significance and status from that. We might even treasure a relationship. But the bottom line is this. All of us, whether young or old, we treasure things, but that is a dangerous endeavor. Because if we treasure the wrong things, it truly can lead to our demise. So for us today, we need to know what should we treasure and how do we treasure it? And Jesus is going to speak to that in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. And in our text today, we're in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, we saw Jesus give this blazing critique of the religious leaders. When you're doing your religious duties of praying, of fasting, of giving to the poor, for the religious leaders, it was just a show, to show off to people. 
to be titans of morality, to get some social credibility. And Jesus says it needs to be sincere, and it needs to be thoughtful. And as he continues on, the rest of chapter 6 builds on this. Our identity as kingdom citizens, as followers of Jesus, shouldn't just affect how we pray, how we fast, how we give to people, but it should affect every part of our lives, even our everyday concerns, our everyday worries. And that's what we're going to look at today with our text. And so in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24, we're going to see three truths about our treasure. Three truths about our treasure. The first one is our treasure, it's high risk. It's high risk because not all treasures are secure. Jesus begins in chapter 19, or verse 19, excuse me, by talking about treasures on earth. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And maybe you've heard this verse before. Maybe you've heard someone preach on this before. Our minds instantly jump to money and wealth. But treasures on earth here, it's a little more broad than that. Jesus brings up moths destroying something. Now, moths might eat money, but you know what else a little pesky moth might like? A really nice shirt, some nice pants, that Gucci vest. Yeah, a moth might want to eat that. So this broadens it to mean clothing or material goods. Jesus says that treasures on earth can be destroyed by rust, and that word rust also means decay. So here's where you get your precious metals, things of that nature. And if a moth isn't eating it, if rust isn't corroding it, well, then I bet I can find a thief that wants to steal it. Because thieves on earth are all about getting material goods, treasures on earth. And so Jesus defines treasures on earth in a really broad way things that can perish, and things that can be taken from us, material goods here on earth. And Jesus shows us the folly. If these are our true treasures, what we really value, oh, they're vulnerable. They can be taken away. They're temporal. And so we've made a mistake if those are our treasures. Now, you might be thinking, well, sure, I can see how some of these things might be perishable, like a shirt like even a, a property or a house, you know, it can go under some corrosion. We got to redo the foundation. But I got insurance policies. But I got this padded savings account. But I have these really low-risk investments. Those seem to be more stable than a lot of things in our world. But that's an illusion. Because guess what? Recessions happen. Ep economic crashes happen. Inflation happens, right? Sometimes people can screw up on our insurance policies and claims. Those things that seem stable, they're really pretty insecure. And so Jesus contrasts these treasures on earth with treasures in heaven. Verse 20, Jesus says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so these are eternal, these are temporal, these are invulnerable treasures. Well, Jesus doesn't explicitly tell us what these are, but we can assume that, you know, you come into the earth and you leave the earth the same way, with nothing, right? The classic, there's no U-Haul going to heaven. We know this. And so what are eternal treasures, treasures that last past our life here on earth? These treasures are a character that is like 
gods. These treasures are people that we've shown the truth of who they are, of who God is, that we told them to have faith in Jesus, that have entered salvation, that have eternal life. That's a treasure if you get to do that. These treasures are obeying God and his commands, things that will be remembered and rewarded for eternity. And so really Jesus is contrasting these two things and asking us, where is your treasure? What do you treasure the most? The things of earth, the material goods, or the spiritual things that are eternal. But we need to remember here, Jesus isn't saying it's bad to have nice stuff. Jesus isn't saying it's bad to have wealth. In fact, a lot of good endeavors, they need some capital to start them. We need wealth. We need a donor. We need something, whether that's a church plant, whether that's a ministry, whether that's humanitarian aid. Good things need some wealth usually to get kick-started. But Jesus says, if you look at verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. For yourself, selfishly wanting to hoard this stuff. Because as kingdom citizens, we're to have God's values in mind. Not just hoarding up and trying to accumulate for ourselves, but to live for him. And so ultimately, Jesus is asking us, what do we value most? Where's your values? Are they kingdom values or are they your own values? Are you living to worship God and to love others? Because ultimately, if we are followers of Jesus, God should establish what we value most. God should establish what we treasure. And that should affect how we view the things that God has given us here on earth. Now, if obviously, we live here in America in the 21st century, and our society values are a lot different than God's values. It was incredible, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who famously said that God is dead, he also talked about what would happen if God was dead in our society. This is what Nietzsche said. He said, what induces one man to use false weights? Another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than it's even worth. While three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud, what gives rise to all of this? It's not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious. They're not living right on the edge. Instead, they are urged on day and night by a terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly and by an equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What was once done for the love of God is now done for the love of money, i.e. for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and good conscience. And so what he was saying is if we reject God, if he's no longer God, well, materialism and money will soon become our God. And instead of doing things out of love for God, which inspires us, gives us a good conscience, feels like we're contributing, now we get that same feeling when we're pursuing material wealth. So this seems pretty obvious. It seems like, yeah, greed is bad. We shouldn't do that. You know, greedy, nah, don't want to be a part of that. But we need to be cautious here because a lot of us would think it's crazy to worship an idol, to worship a carved image, to worship a picture of something. But many of us bow down at the idol of materialism and greed, and some of us don't even know it. It goes undetected. You know, I've been a Christian for most of my life, and I don't think I've ever heard someone say, you know, I really struggle with greed. Can you pray for me over my greed issue? 
it really goes undetected. And I think one of the main reasons why is when you finally put down some roots, whether it's in Boise or Meridian or Caldwell or Cuna or Middleton or Star or wherever you're at, when you put down some roots, buy a place, send your kids to school, you're involved in the community. And when you're involved in a group of people, you will notice that there's some people who have more than you do. And we compare ourselves to those people. We say, well, I don't have as much as he does. I don't have as much as they have. I'm pretty modest. I'm living pretty normally. And we use that comparison to justify buying more stuff to try to keep up. I mean, you can use this excuse anywhere. You could be a billionaire and go and live in a neighborhood with multi-billionaires and say, you know, I'm pretty modest. Look at them. They got more than I do. But you know what we don't compare ourselves to? Anyone else in the world, you take someone from another country coming in, and they're amazed by the level of comfort and blessings we have that we say are necessities. They would laugh at us, saying, this is crazy. And so we need to be careful of our greed. It's interesting. The Pew Research Center did a poll, and 98% of Americans say that they are middle to lower class, and only 2% say that they are in the upper class. Well, statistically, we're wrong. If we think about the world's level of wealth, we have it great here. And so I just bring this up to say a lot of times we can dismiss this and say, I'm not greedy. I don't deal with materialism. Well, Jesus actually said way more about abusing money and materialism than about abusing sex. And yet none of us think we struggle with this issue. So we should begin by saying, you know, materialism, being greedy, that might be a problem for us this morning for me, for you, for all of us. That should be our starting spot. And if that is us, it's risky because not all treasure is secure. It's high risk. The second thing we learn about our treasure is that it comes with a massive return or a high return because our treasure affects every part of our lives, every single part of it. Jesus says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in the Bible, the heart is the core of your personality. It's where your emotions are, your dreams, your desires, what you really want, the good life, what you're driven by. That is your heart. And Jesus tells us that, you know, the true treasure chest, it's in your chest. Your heart is a trophy case for whatever you treasure, your heart will be glued to it. Your emotions, your dreams, your actions will be driven by this. And only one set of values, only one thing can take that spot. Everything else is demoted. It's lower class. It's pushed out. And he shows this to us in a metaphor in verses 22 and 23. Jesus continues on. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So he uses a pretty basic metaphor. Somebody with 20-20 vision and somebody who's blind. If you have 20-20 vision, you can navigate the world pretty well. You see where stairs are. You see traffic. You see furniture. You can navigate your life. You can make your way through it. Now, if you're blind, it's a lot more difficult. And of course, people who are blind learn how to cope really well. They can function normally. A lot of their senses get supercharged. 
when they don't have their sense of sight. But it's basic fact, common sense, that if you can see, you can navigate this earth a lot better than if you can't. And so Jesus makes this a metaphor. He says, he's comparing here, contrasting good eyes or healthy eyes and bad eyes. And the word healthy in verse 22 in the Greek, it means having a single laser-like focus, an undivided vision of something. That's a good eye. That's a healthy eye. A bad eye is someone who's seeing double, whose eyes are looking off in different places. And really, this is hammering home what Jesus asked us in verses 19 through 20. What do you value most? Here it's, where is your loyalty? Is it an undivided, single, focused loyalty on God and his values? Or are you seeing double? Do you have split vision? And this is an important question. It affects us a lot because it affects the rest of our lives. The metaphor continues. It says that if your eye is healthy, in verse 22, your whole body will be full of light. And in Scripture, light symbolizes seeing things for how they are, revelation and purity. And so if you have that single-minded, undivided loyalty on God and his values, you will truly understand who you are, what you're doing in this crazy place called earth, who God is. You'll understand your mission, your purpose. It will be much more fulfilling than living for anything else. It's like you are seeing with 20-20 vision navigating and walking through your life. But if you're seeing double, if you have divided loyalties, it's like you're stumbling around. Because you might say, yeah, I value God. I value what he wants, but, you know, I really want that boat. That yacht looks pretty nice. That new vacation home or just having a nice upgrade. I'm going to work extra, extra, extra hard. Live for getting that new house, etc. And when we do that, we're stumbling around. We're not living how the way God made us to live. And when our selfish desires, when we're trying to hoard things for ourselves, when those drive us, when those get at the root of our emotions and our desires, well, then our motives won't be pure. And all of a sudden, we'll try to satisfy what we want above all else. And that is the root of all sorts of evil, of all sorts of things that we see in our world today. When I was preparing this message, I was reminded of the voyage of Apollo 13, space shuttle going to the moon. And on day six of their voyage, disaster struck. The Apollo 13, the shuttle, it was off course. The men, the astronauts in that shuttle were headed into an oblivion of nothingness. If they didn't get back on track, they would spend the rest of their lives in that shuttle. They couldn't make it. And the problem was they were off course and they needed some power to boost them back on the right path. But to get that power, they'd have to shut off the computer that steered the ship. So it all came down to this. For 30 seconds, they'd have to manually steer the Apollo 13 to make it back on track. And so I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in that shuttle. You know, your life, death, it's all in the hands of these 30 seconds of hoping you can drive this Apollo 13 craft. And in order to try and make this feasible, they decided, you know what, the way we can steer this thing, we have this little small window. If we can find a fixed point way in the distance, and as long as we can see that through this little window, we'll be okay. Well, guess what that fixed distance was? That little point in the space. It was the earth. 
They were saying, if we can see Earth in this window at all times, no matter how much this thing is going crazy, bucking around, we'll make it back. And they did that. They had their eyes single-focused on the Earth, and it got them back on course. Well, that's a pretty good way of describing where our loyalty lies. If it's God and his values, if that's our focus, no matter what shaky turbulence we deal with in life, we'll be on course. But when it's divided, we'll be going all over the place, and it will affect our lives and how we live it. And so we really need to think for a minute, imagine what is most thrilling to us, what really gets at our desires, what makes us most passionate in life, what drives you, what do you dream about, what do you can't wait for something to happen or somewhere to go to? These are important questions where our emotions and our hearts are at because it will show us our treasure. And that will have a massive, massive return. It affects everything we do. So not only is our treasure a high-risk investment, it has a massive return, but it also comes with an extremely high price. Because we don't own treasure. Our treasure owns us. This is where this whole passage is leading down to verse 24. And Jesus kind of anticipates a skeptic here saying, well, you know what? What I want in life, my desire for stuff, that doesn't affect me spiritually. I can do both. I can multitask here. You think you're too low of me. Well, Jesus sets it straight. In verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in the Greek there, this word money, it's Jesus pers personified money or wealth. It's a rival God. It's mammon. That's the word. And so when we read this, we might think, well, this seems pretty extreme, super black and white, all or nothing. I must hate everything in the world or love God. Is that really how this works? Well, we need to understand here, without going into too far of extremes, that when Jesus is comparing two things, when he says hate and love, back then it meant you extremely prefer one over the other. So, for example, when Jesus is talking in another passage in the Bible and he says that you're to hate your mother and father, you're even to hate yourself over God, he's not saying you despise yourself. He's not saying you despise your parents. Other places he says you're to love your mother and father and honor them. What it means is we must strongly prefer loyalty to God over all other loyalties. And here it says we don't need to hate the good things in the world, but our strong preference is for God and who he is. And it's really interesting because Jesus lays it down. He says you will, be ser you will serve God or money or wealth or whatever it is, that one of those will be a master over you. He doesn't say... You can't serve God and money like employers. No, he uses the word master and slave, this analogy, because it's all in. You are owned by one of the two. And he uses the words of idolatry here, the verbs in verse 24. Notice he says that you will love God or mammon. You'll be devoted to God or mammon. You will serve God or mammon. So it's really the language of idolatry. Who will be your God, the creator or the creature? Will you love 
mammon? Will you dream about different ways to make more money, the fastest way possible you can make it? Will that be your driving thought day and night? Will you be devoted to money or wealth because they give you significance, they give you status, so you're devoted to them? Will you serve money and wealth and say, you know what, if this gives me significance, if this is what I want, then I'll do anything to get it. That is what Jesus is telling to us right here in Matthew chapter 6. And so maybe you think this morning, wow, I do have some undivided loyalty. I do really treasure the things of earth more than I treasure the things of heaven. What do I do about it? Well, we need to bring up an important point right here. Because a lot of times, if we are serving, if we're mastered by money or wealth or some material goods, that's a surface idol, a surface God, you could say. Because really, we know that sin affects our hearts and our motivations in life. And really, we're using money or whatever it is to scratch that deeper itch, that deeper idol. So for example, some of us, really what we idolize is control. We got to have control of our world. And so we worship money, we hoard it, we're super stingy, super, super frugal, because what that does is that pleases us. That scratches that idol of control. We feel like we have control and security in our world. And what's funny is we might not view those people as having a money problem, but they're still selfishly spending all their money on themselves. The same way, or a different way, but the same cause as somebody who lives a life of extreme luxury and lavishness and is buried in a mountain of debt, their God in their heart might be status or acceptance or significance, and so they need to buy their way to the part. They're spending all their money on that idol in their heart. Other people have a love of money or mammon because they want power over others. They want to have manipulative power, mastery of their world. And so we need to realize that a lot of times, if our values are in the wrong place, if we value wealth or material goods or money, it's because there's a deeper idol in our hearts. And so what do we do about that? Well, here's what we can't do. I bring this up because it's a problem. We can't just say, well, I'm going to do better. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to force myself to be more generous. I'm going to force myself to maybe be a little less frugal, a little less stingy, not irresponsible, but, you know, give a little bit more away. We can try to fix the surface problem, but there's still the deeper one. There's still the roots of that in our heart. The under-the-surface idol is still there. And so just trying to fix and slap a Band-Aid on the symptom won't fix our real problem. So what do we do? What do we do about this? Well, we need to treasure God. We need to treasure God. And you might say, well, duh, Ryan, that's where this whole thing has been headed since the first couple of minutes. And you're right. But how do we do that? How can we be affected at a heart level and not just the symptoms of that? Well, really, it's grasping God's generosity, grasping God's amazing generosity. I want you to think for a minute about something that you love. Now, I've invited you to daydream like two or three times in this message, so take it while you have it. <laughs> so think about something you love, and it doesn't have to be something super deep or super significant. It could be a great meal that your husband makes for you or your wife makes for you or the chef at a restaurant makes for you, that amazing meal that you just love, you enjoy it. It could be a scenic sunset. 
a picture of beauty. I think of when you're on the backside of Bogus Basin, you see the, the sprawling mountains out there. Gorgeous when you're up there. It could be the smile of your spouse, the laughter of your baby or your, your child, but something that you truly love, truly enjoy. I need you to remember that as long as it's not sin or immoral, that God made that specifically for you to enjoy. Last week, we talked about the Lord's Prayer. We, asked, we talked about God giving us our daily bread and that all good things come from him. Well, all good things in your life, things that you love and enjoy, that are holy, that are good, God made those specifically for you to enjoy, and he made you specifically to enjoy them. God has shown us amazing generosity with the good gifts that he's given to us on this earth. All those things are given to you by God. But that just scratches the surface of God's generosity. I want to read a verse to you from 2 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is what it says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the ultimate depth of God's generosity. See, Jesus, before he became man, and while he was man, Jesus was fully God. Jesus had it all, all the wealth, all the riches you can imagine, all the privileges in the world. He was God. But then mankind sinned, all of us sinned. We wanted to be our own little gods. We disobeyed the Lord of all creation. And that sin came with a punishment. It's death, physical death, but then eternity separated from God. And so there was a decision that had to be made. Jesus could withhold all of those privileges to keep all of them and use them fully, and yet we would be eternally poor. Or he could willingly refuse to use some of those privileges so that he could become a man and live in our place, take our punishment for us, and give us his riches, his righteousness. And that's what he did, God's incredible generosity. Jesus willingly refused to use some of the privileges that came with being God so he could live as a full man. You know, he could have came as man and said, I'm going to have a perfect immune system. I'm not going to experience any pain emotionally or physically. It's going to be great. But that wouldn't be really living as a full human being. He came here. He had sinus infections probably, seasonal allergies. He got sick. He felt betrayed by his one of his best friends. For the first time ever, obeying God would result in suffering for him. When he was in the Trinity, he would obey the Father perfectly, and it would be a great outcome. It never resulted in suffering. Here on this fallen earth, on this sinful earth, obedience led to suffering for Jesus Christ. And he lived without sin, a perfect life. He died on the cross in our behalf in the worst way imaginable. So he went from being fully God to being fully God and man to being treated as the worst of all men, crucified on a cross, nailed to a tree, and slowly suffocating for us, for our sin. And if we put our faith in Jesus and that he died for our sins, we get his righteousness, his riches. And now we're adopted children of God. We have an incredible inheritance. And so truly, we need to grasp God's generosity and the good things he's given us. But at an ultimate level, we need to realize that Jesus was rich and became poor to treasure us. 
And when we grasp that and cling to that, we will begin to treasure him above all else. That will really set our hearts on treasuring God. Because guess what? When we realize that, money or mammon, it doesn't need to give us status or significance. God's given us a status and a significance that no amount of money could possibly buy. When we do that, we don't need to worship and bow down to mammon for security because God's given us eternal life and he's given us security here. We don't need to bow down to the idol of mammon and say, please provide for me because God has given us all good things and God will provide for us. So practically, what can we do? Well, to change at our heart level, I'd encourage you and I challenge you every day this week, write down three things you're thankful for. And thank God for his generosity in giving you these things. And top it off with thanking him for the salvation he's given you. Ask God that you could grasp the beauty and the magnitude of that again. I'll tell you, through doing that, God's Holy Spirit, he will change our desires and our hearts to truly grasp the beauty of what he's done. And then to live that out, I'd encourage you to do a generous gesture this week. Do a generous gesture. It could be financially, like leaving a big tip at a restaurant you go to or for a service you have or at a coffee shop or something like that. It could be being generous with your time, babysitting for someone, helping someone out with a project. It could be being generous by sending an encouraging note or going out of your way to show generosity to someone. But when we truly grasp how God gave up his riches for us, then we can be generous with the riches he's given to us. Andrew Carnegie is a name you may have heard, maybe not. Carnegie Hall is a super, super famous music hall in New York City. And Andrew Carnegie, he was a titan of the steel industry. At one point, his company was the most valuable company in the world. But what's interesting is that 33 years old, Carnegie had amazing insight. It's really amazing, his self-awareness here. He wrote a note to himself. This is what Carnegie said. He said, man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately at. Therefore, I should be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character. To continue much longer, overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts, wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, that must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35, but during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. He had incredible insight to realize, you know what, what I treasure most is wealth. I have an idol in my heart. Did he resign business at 35? No, he didn't. He recognized he had an idol, but he didn't know what to do about it. And he continued on in business, and he established a lot of libraries. He was a philanthropist. But if you read accounts by some of his workers, you realize that some of those character flaws he's worried about, they became a reality. His workers worked brutally long hours for abysmally low wages in poor conditions to get the work done, to get some of that wealth happening. See, Carnegie realized he had an idol, but what he didn't realize is we can't just remove idols. We gotta replace them with something. We have a God-sized hole in our hearts, so to speak, and something is gonna fill that void. 
We can't just have it lay empty. And so instead of switching idols and going from wealth to status, significance, instead of trying to fit other things in there, we need to replace those idols, replace that mammon with God. We need to treasure God. Because when we truly treasure God, he is the only thing and he's the only one who can give us our quest for hope, for joy, for significance, for worth, for status. He can give us things that no amount of money could ever, ever buy. And so treasure God. Grasp God's generosity. Live as kingdom citizens. We can live responsibly but generously, living for God and for others. And treasure the God who gave up so much to treasure you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible generosity to us. In so many ways, in so many ways, we take for granted you're generous. We worship you as the giver of all good gifts. And ultimately, Lord, the best gift that we could ever receive is the eternal life you've given us through your Son. Thank you for the radical mercy and grace you've shown to us. And I pray that we would truly grab a hold of that, not just with our brains, but also with our hearts and our fully who we are, that it would give us passion and drive to live out who we truly are in you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.